Good morning, church. And a special welcome to those of you who are visiting with us, maybe for the first time. And I also want to take uh, the time to greet those joining us online, our online gathering, who are engaging with us uh, via the website and also through Facebook. And we're glad you could be here with us. And thank you, choir. That was... uh, that was amazing. That was lovely. And so appreciate the ministry of uh, Margaret Samuels. Everything, everything actually just reminded us to look up and remind us of how good God is, even down to, to the baby dedication today, just the blessings of God today. So this is a good day to focus on how blessed we are because we have a God who loves us. So how shall we begin today? <clears throat> um, whenever I babysit... Uh, kids in my family, you know, or uh, friends who have children, or my youngest cousin, um, I become the storyteller. And what I've noticed that's really common with uh, children is that they often ask, um, tell that story again. And my little cousin, uh, Papito, I would tell him a story and he would ask for a story and I would tell him, well, I've told you this 10 times, don't you want a new story? He said, yes, but tell that story Again, And when I begin the story, he would rush and uh, tell the ending. And it's not about the fact that he didn't remember the story or he didn't know the story. It's precisely because he knew how it ended that made the story worth retelling. And usually when I told stories, it was stories about a prince or a princess who, um, who won and overcame great odds. Uh, to conquer whatever challenge uh, they, were faced, they were faced with. So whether in good times or bad times, especially in bad times, we need to tell again stories about God, about how God loves us, how God still speaks, and uh, how God is at work in our community, even when the odds are stacked against us. So we live in a time where we need to be reminded that uh, the good guy wins, that the hero wins. So I was kind of late in learning about the events um, surrounding Las Vegas. And um, in Las Vegas, this is how one journalist summarizes essentially what happened. Uh, A man that was rich enough to own two planes uh, came with an arsenal of guns and opened fire on hundreds of concert goers across the street as he stood in the upper floor of a luxury hotel hitting and injuring hundreds and hundreds of innocents. It's beyond comprehension. Um, It's difficult to even imagine how a human being could do that to another human being. And it's never really, there's never a good explanation. And uh, sometimes there are none except maybe um, this is evil. You know, enemy has done this. So at the end of that rampage, uh, there were too many lives that were lost and there were also lives that were devastated uh, forever by extension. And then we saw uh, um, a lineup of survivors, uh, traumatized survivors who shared uh, in disbelief, kind of recounted what had happened to them uh, that night. And in our upside down world that we live in today, a comedian uh, became a spokesperson for a lot of us when he said, it feels like someone has opened a window into hell. We are a nation in mourning and in shock. So a few days ago, I was reading uh, a headline, and this is what it said. It said, storms, earthquakes, North Korea, 
and now Las Vegas massacre, we have to wonder what's next, end quote. And then the article featured a litany of events and, of course, this week's tragedies. While this article, it proposed uh, an unsatisfactory possibility of coincidences. But the conclusion, finally, of this writer is that the coincidences don't, it doesn't satisfy. And uh, it's in, he, I quote, it left weary Americans wondering if we are living in the end times. But the thing is, this wasn't an article from the Adventist Review. And this wasn't from Christianity Today, but from the very secular USA Today, asking, are we living in the end times? So what do we tell our children? And what do we tell uh, our, t- our teenagers? And what do we tell our uh, adults, other adults, about the state of the world, about the state of our country? And what do we tell ourselves in times of uncertainty um, with, with our own you know, perplexity and our own uh, worries? So people, I don't believe, are, are looking for theories and not looking for news pundits to explain it to us. I don't think they're even looking for theological pundits. And what, the, what people need right now is a word from the Lord. So when evil descends upon us, that's what we need to tell again and again, the story of how God loves us, speaks to us, and is at work doing good things um, through our community. Now, I often go back to the book of, um, of uh, First Kings. I go to the story of Elijah. Whenever um, I'm confronted with, um, uh, I don't know, anything to do with collapsing, either social collapse, economic collapse, even personal inadequacies, I'm just so drawn by the story of the prophet Elijah. And many of us, who, if we go up with the church, we've heard the story many times in their children's book, somebody told me, uh, about the prophet Elijah. Now, Elijah the Tishbite is a quick like, summary. So this was a man who even is featured in the, in the Quran. I mean, he's bigger than life. He was bigger than life. Um, even back then, with his uh, biography of mountaintop experiences and huge miracles. And yet, uh, James 5, when it talks about the prophet Elijah, it tells us that Elijah was a man just like us. That's what the, the book of James says. But so it's really difficult to imagine that Elijah would be a man just like us when I don't know many people who can pray and make fire come down from, from heaven. So Elijah was, was uh, bigger than life. He was uncompromising and strong. But the passage that I want to focus on today is on 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. And the, the, the uh, chapters leading up to 1 Kings chapter 19, um, the prophet, you know, as many of you already know, he stood in front of a crowd of people, like a thousand people, right, with the, the, the heads of state, because, you know, in the history, if you remember, they had declared that the religion of Baal was the official uh, religion of Israel. And uh, Elijah was standing against that. He came to protest, and um, he um, ch- uh, challenged this thing, and he said that the real God is going to make fire come down from, from heaven. And he said that the God who answers by fire, that's the real God. So as you know, uh, Yahweh won because Baal uh, didn't do anything. So God sent, affirmed Elijah's ministry and supernaturally fire came down from heaven, burned up the altar to the stone, to the ground, and pulverized everything. And, and um, God and Elijah was victorious. So by the time you get to 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah is even more bold than he's ever been. I mean, he is bold and strong and he shows up in the city of, of Jezreel and um, and it's a bold thing to do, to show up in that city. Why? Because Jezreel was the capital, 
and it was also the seat of government, right, where all the official was. And the reason why it was a bold move is also because Elijah, you know, his colleagues, his colleagues in ministry, all the other fellow prophets, um, they were being killed left and right. So Elijah was a wanted man. He had a, a mark on his life, but he didn't care. He showed up to the city because he is, it's, he's still in, in the intoxication of this victory in the name of God. So he comes in the city, and then um, he probably expected uh, massive conversions and the people to come back to, to God, and he expected the pagans to say, yes, yes, we'll follow your God. But that's not what happened. Instead, he receives a message from the queen, um, and she says, I'm going to kill you. And he realizes that nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. And the bad guy is winning. Evil is, is winning. Um, let's pray. Let's pray. Lord God, as we prepare to open your word, speak to us and give us understanding uh, of you, Lord, or at the very least of how much we're cared and loved. In your name, amen. Amen. So let's, let's take a look at this. So you can pull your Bible either in front of your pews or uh, in your electronics. Or I'm gonna, oh, you can read the screen simply. So 1 Kings 19.3. Let's just take the time to read it. Um, Elijah was afraid and he fled for his life. He went to Be- Beersheba, a town of Judah, and he left his servant there. And that's very significant. Basically, he quit. He fired his staff and said, I'm done with this. I'm quitting. Then he went alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. Verse 5. Then he lay down and slept under a broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel of the Lord touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around and there beside his head was some uh, bread baked on a hot stone and a jar of water. So there he drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again, touched him and said, get up and eat some more for the journey ahead will be too much for you. Verse 8, so he got up and ate and drank and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And finally, verse uh, 9, there he came to a cave where he spent the night. The wilderness is a place of, uh, of disconnection from God. Uh, the wilderness is, uh, is when the rug is pulled from underneath you. The wilderness experience is a search for meaning of what's happening. What is God doing in my life? And the wilderness is a sense that, um, that God might show up, but you're not really sure. And I never get tired of the way God shows up in this passage. In the 19 verse 5, you know, he was sleeping and then an angel touched him and says, get up and eat. You know, God's compassion is in full display. You know, he becomes like our mom or dad in the kitchen when we don't feel too well. Um, I, I remember I failed my very first job out of, out of uh, college. I, I failed. I got demoted. And I was so disappointed. And I came home and went to my room and stared at the wall. And in fact, I still remember the closet door. <laughs> and while I was staring at the wall, uh, my mom didn't say a word. She came from behind me and um, stuck in front of me a bowl with two scoops of vanilla ice cream. And I felt a little bit more courageous. <laughs> you know, sometimes uh, in time of crises, you know, the best consolation is not, 
complicated explanations or, or charts and timelines or even a sermon, at least not initially. So God sends a, a, an angel and um, the, he starts baking bread and, and giving him water. He sends him a gift of touch and sleep and food. And um, no, the, the direct application that I have for us, you know, is, is at, this, at this moment is to turn off the TV for a while, to go to bed and get a massage. And we're done. <laughs> no, God sent an angel. He sent a messenger. And, um, but God sent something even better. He, someone, he sent his only son, Jesus. In the midst of a, of a crisis of faith, God tells Elijah, rest is too much for you. And Jesus tells us, come to me and you'll find rest. Let's tell again the story of how God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There's a book by Philip Yancey that's called um, Reaching for an Invisible God. I don't remember the content of the, of the book, but the story that, that has always stayed with me is a story that he tells at the end. He and his wife, Janet, Philip Yancey, uh, volunteer at this nursing home. And um, in this circle, this like small group that they have, um, there's this woman with Alzheimer's who comes every Friday, and her name is Betsy. And Betsy comes to the group, and she int- and she's introduced herself very enthusiastically, and um, and she, because she forgets that she met these people. So every week it's the same thing. She introduces herself. Then she sits, and then there's a vacant stare. Um, and she somehow Janet discovered that Betsy still knew how to read. So what she would do is uh, pick passages for this lady to read. But it was obvious for the people who took care of Betsy that as she read, she didn't seem to show any comprehension of what she was reading. So one day, um, Philip Yancey says that his wife Janet uh, hands over a, um, a hymn for, for Betsy to read, and Betsy begins to read the hymn. And, and she reads, um, On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem, and she would stop. And she became agitated and said, I can't, I can't, it's, it's too sad, it's too sad. And the people were shocked because it was the first time that she seemed to have given an indication that she actually understood what she was reading. So the wife tried again and said, why don't you just go ahead and read it? And she would read it again. On the hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem, and she would stop right there and she would say, it's too sad, it's too sad, I can't, I can't. And she became so agitated that finally Janet decided to take her back to her room and she walked her back to her room and to her amazement, for the very first time she sees no Betsy, Betsy began to sing by memory the words of the hymn. On the hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love the old rugged cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners were slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Philip Yancey, you know, reflects on that moment and he says, somewhere in that tattered mind, damaged neuron had tapped into a network of old connection to resurrect a pattern of meaning for Betsy. In her confusion, two things only stood out, suffering and shame. Those two words summarize the human condition, the condition that she lived every day of her sad life. Who knows more suffering and shame than Betsy? For her, the hymn answered the question, Jesus does. 
Hebrews tells us that Jesus does know. It says that he was beset with weakness. So Jesus identified with us. He was beset with weakness. In this world we live in, we don't use weakness that much. Um, And the social scientists have been using this word called vulnerable, vulnerability. Um, We'd rather look pretty much put together and like we have everything figured out than to show our weakness and our vulnerability. I was talking to a young adult not long ago and she was saying how she wished church was a place where she could be vulnerable and admit her clinical depression and for her friends to be able to find a refuge and be able to talk about their addictions. Vulnerability is, is where Elijah was. Vulnerability is where God meets us and it's, it's where we connect um, with each other. And Elijah, it says that even though he was strengthened with the, by the food, he was still hungry and thirsty and vulnerable and he went out seeking God uh, at the mountain. Now, if you look at your concordance, when you see Mount Sinai, it takes you back to Exodus, doesn't it? Exodus 33, among other places. And it's the same place where Moses at one point asked the Lord, show me your glory when he was in crisis. And Elijah must have remembered that because he, went, he goes on the cleft of that rock and because the God that he knows is the God that he knows is a God of fire, And the God that showed up to Moses was a God of fire. And now Elijah is not so sure what's going on. What happened to this God of fire? Why is he letting him down? And uh, I want us to read what happens next together. It's worth reading together. Um, 1 Kings 19, verses 11 and 13. So what I'm going to ask you to do, uh, 1 Kings 19, 11 to 13, is is to read the, hopefully you can see it, but it's to read the uh, the red parts. There we go. You can see it, right? All the way there? All right, so I'll start and you read the red print. Um, So this is what God says. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord said. Together. And a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose. After the wind, there was an earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire. And after the fire, there was a sound of a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face on his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? Have you ever been in a place where you're just thirsty to hear from God, and you have the point where you're ready to hear from God. You know, when I, uh, in preparation for today, um, I realized that today, to the date, 14 years ago, was a time where I almost, uh, I was almost done with pastoral ministry. And um, around this time, actually this date today, uh, you know, there were some warning signs, actually, And uh, there were warning signs because I was quite busy. I was loving this place of ministry. I love love pastoral ministry because there's a different type of ministry. And uh, I was just passionate about it and really felt God's uh, blessing. And and I was working really hard. And I had a few headaches, but I figured I could catch up on sleep the following week. And uh, in fact, one of the things that was very striking to me still is that I was sitting with some colleagues and we were eating and I was eating a sandwich and at one point I lost my sense, I couldn't taste the sandwich. And I remember looking up as if anybody else had heard that. 
doesn't make any sense, but that was a warning sign. So I woke up that Wednesday, and, uh, and I woke up sore all over and weak all over, but I was going to, you know, go through it because I had ch- we had chapel that day, and um, brushing my teeth, and I, and I was pick up the cup to rinse my mouth, and the water ran down my mouth. I thought, that was strange, so I just put the water back again, and then the water ran out my mouth again. So I, just, I looked at the mirror, and, um, and I sort of adjusted the mirror, but the mirror, nothing was wrong with the mirror. It was me. My face looks lopsided. And I, I decided that moment, the hospital was across the street, so I decided that moment that I would actually walk, because in my mind, I thought I was not going to walk again. So I walked to the hospital. And fortunately, the ER was, was, was not too full, so the nurse uh, uh, took me in, and she started questioning me. And I saw her face as she looked at me. Her eyes grew a little bigger. And she said, I think you're going to be admitted. You need to admit it right now. So they admitted me. And by the time um, it was evening, uh, my face was completely... And I, the only reason you can see it is if I kind of lopsided this and I freeze frame it. But this whole side was gone. It was just lost. And I couldn't close my eyes. And the, the, the neurologist said, you know, if you don't get better after a couple of days, maybe after three weeks, generally that means that it might take a whole year for your face to, be, to come back to normal. So I went, I went home, I went to, to, to my family's home, and I left a ministry that I actually was so passionate about. And that was for me, uh, in my adult life, my first true wilderness experience. Because going out in the street, you know, my vulnerability, I wore it outside, because people would do a double take. They didn't mean to be rude, but they kind of looked around, I looked again. And, um, and I remember when one of my youngest parishioners came to visit me, you know, he said, bless his heart, he said, Pastor Sabine, you're having a nervous breakdown, which is not false because all the nerve had broken down on that side. So it wasn't, it was actually quite the case. But you know what, it didn't, it ultimately, the prayer of the people is what sustained me. The prayer, that's why I believe in prayer, the prayer of the people. It took actually less than, than three months for my face to go back to, to, to what it was. And when I went to the neurologist's office, um, he took a, a look at me. He took my uh, face in his hand and he broke down a sob and started crying. And I, and I remember also that, um, that week when I was at the grocery store staying in line and this old, older lady with white hair turned to me and she said, by that time my face was, was back to what it was. She said, you know, little girl, you have a, a very nice smile. And I said, thank you. And I said, praise God. Not because I was trying to be holy, because to me, the smile represented um, a story about how God um, still speaks even though he seemed to be silent. God is able to restore. He did restore my smile, so I don't take that smile um, for granted. In the wilderness, we need to tell again the story of God, how God still speaks even though he seems silent. So instead of a, of a God of fire, Elijah finds the whisper. And different translations have different words for it. And, and mostly, most of us know it as the still small voice. My favorite one is the sheer thin silence. It's the silence. It's outwardly. Um, whether you call it silence, whether you call it whisper, whether you call it gentle voice or a soft wind, the thing that happened was saturated and, and, and full of God's presence. And how do we know that? Because Elijah um, hid his face, an act of profound reverence um, as someone who sees God himself. Now, John the Baptist, um, when he lived, 
he, even including by Jesus, was often called an, an, uh, the Elijah reborn because he dressed like Elijah, apparently. He preached like Elijah in the desert. So he was like Elijah reborn. Well, in Matthew 11, John the Baptist sends a message to his cousin Jesus, and he's asking Jesus, are you the one or should I look for another? What John was asking is, where's the fire? Where's the wind? Where's the revolution? And I've ended up here in prison, and evil is winning. God, what are you doing? What John received barely was a whisper. Sure, Jesus sent back a message saying, people are being healed, the blinds are being seen, but you know what? There, on the surface, that answer doesn't seem pretty, particularly comforting as John looks up from his prison cell for answers. I don't know about you, but I don't find warm fuzzies in the silence of God. The gentle voice of God is not gentle. The voice of God confronts and shakes us and challenges us like it challenged John the Baptist, like it challenged Elijah, like it's challenging us now. That gentle voice, gentle, is asking, I'm working out my plan for good to win. Will you trust me? This whisper is uncompromising. Trust me. I'm working out things for good. I'm working out things to win. When we tell the story again, let's tell the story of how God speaks through through his promises and that God still speaks. And when he speaks, we find out that his ways are not our ways, that God is a wild thing, that God cannot be contained in a box. And that was Elijah's problem. And God surprises us with the way he speaks. And God surprises us with how the people he chooses to fulfill the good things in the world. God surprises us with who he chooses. Now, twice God is asked Elijah in the, in the narrative. God asked Elijah, um, um, what are you doing here? And then if you read the passage, he answers the very same thing. It's kind of a complaining answer. I'm the only one that's left, and, you know, and um, nobody else is left, and they're trying to kill me. He said, even though he's seen these manifestations of God, his answer remains the same. And I, you know, I, I don't understand, or I, didn't under, I don't understand Elijah's reaction. And, and I don't get really what this is doing in the Bible. And I didn't have a chance to ask some Old Testament scholars to see what they think. But I think that, um, that, that God, despite his answer, Elijah's answer, gives Elijah a mission, despite his imperfect attitude. So the hope in this story, in this, in this little in this moment here, it gives us that God doesn't want us to be all right. God doesn't wait for us to be completely perfect before he gives us a purpose and a meaning and a mission. And this is the mission that God gives to the prophet in 1 Kings 19. He gives him uh, sidekicks. He gives him uh, helpers. Um, God still calls Elijah, but God leads him out of the desert into a community of others. I want to take the time to read it, okay? God leads him out of the desert into a community of other people. In verse 15, it says, then the Lord told him, go back. This is after Elijah said, I'm the only one left, Lord. God says, go back the same way you came. Travel to the wilderness of Damascus when you arrive here and anoint Azael to be king of Aram. Then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, the king of Israel. Anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, uh, from the town of Abel Meloah to replace you as my prophet. Yet I have reserved 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal 
or kissed him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know, whether it be in, uh, have you noticed this, whether it be in Texas or in Houston or in Mexico, uh, the stories that have been emerging even this week, the stories that have been emerging this week is about how uh, through social media, through the news outlet, is about strangers reaching out to other strangers with a helping hand. Have you noticed? Uh, Tom McGrath, that's him on the screen. Tom McGrath was in the Las Vegas shooting and um, when it was starting. And Tom McGrath observed that no one suffered that night. No one suffered that night. Indeed, we heard stories how strangers held the hand of other strangers as they bled to death. We heard of strangers who cradled other strangers as they took their last breath. Tom McGrath um, was there, and he uh, was there as an off-duty police officer. He was off-duty. And he's credited to having saved the life of a man named Jonathan Smith. This is Jonathan Smith on the screen. And this picture of Jonathan Smith went viral this last week because Jonathan was shot in the neck. And despite his, the bullet being in his neck, he went back again and again um, in the line of fire to pull out over 30 people to safety until he collapsed on the ground. And when he collapsed on the ground, Tom found him there. And Tom put his finger in the wound so that um, John would not bleed to death. So this is what Jonathan Smith says about, about, about uh, Tom McGrath. He says, it didn't even matter that I was a different race. That did not stop Tom from reaching out to me. And about Tom, Jonathan said, he is my brother. I owed that man my life because from the moment I got hit, he was the first one to actually help me stop the bleeding. You know, two summers ago, we, we did a summer series called Who's My Neighbor? Do you remember that? When we put our little sweaters. And uh, if you weren't there, you can look it up. Who's My Neighbor? And it was based on uh, Mr. Rogers, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, on Fred Rogers. Many of us grew up uh, with Fred Rogers in his uh, uh, kids' program. Well, this is a quote from, from Mr. Rogers. And Mr. Rogers um, tells a story often how when he was a little boy, he would see disasters on the news. And quote, this is what he, he said. He said, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. To this day, especially in time of disaster, I remember my mother's words. I'm always comforted by realizing that there are still so many helpers, so many caring people in this world. God told Elijah, look for the helpers. Who are the helpers of God? They're not whom Elijah was expecting. Hazael he was a pagan. And this sidekick that uh, God assigns to the prophet uh, Elisha, he was a wealthy landowner and a, a wealthy farmer. And what about those seven thousands that had never bowed to Baal? Many of them were not necessarily Israelites. Listen to what Apostle Paul, he writes a commentary of this episode of, of uh, Elijah's uh, life. So listen to what the Apostle Paul says about this. In Romans 11, verse 2 and 5, this is what Paul says. He says, Elijah the prophet complained to God about the people of Israel and said, Lord, they have killed our prophets and torn down our altars. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And do you remember God's reply? He said, no, I have 7,000 who have never bowed down to Baal. Verse 5, it is the same today 
for a few of the people of Israel have remained faithful because of God's grace, his undeserved kindness in choosing them. Whenever the Bible talks about a faithful few, whenever the Bible talks about the remnant, it's not about the group's specialness. The remnant is not a reason for boasting, except that it is a reason to boast about God's grace. The remnant is an evidence of God at work. It's about the grace extended to a bunch of people who are undeserving and unexpected, and that's why it's called grace. Now, remember when the disciple, um, one of the disciples, Philip, told Jesus, you know, Jesus showed us the Father now and we'll be satisfied. Remember what Jesus said in John 14? He said, Philip, (laughs) you know, if you want to see the Father, don't look no further. You know, look at me and you'll see the Father. You'll see God. Today, people are looking for answers and they're, they're asking, are we living in end times? So what if they come to you and they say, um, and they ask to see God? What are we supposed to do? Where are we supposed to point them to? Well, the answer is found later on in the chapter of, of uh, um, in the book of John, in chapter 17. Jesus gives the answer of where we're supposed to point them to if they look for God, his church. And some of us might be thinking, are you kidding, his church? I mean, this is full of hypocrites, Right? I mean, we can't even agree on policy. We can't agree on practices. We argue a lot. We let each other down. But yet this is what God's plan is to show himself, his church. Yes. When God calls his church, um, the people he calls to his church to lead his church are unexpected. And in the eye of some people, they might appear undeserved, undeserving. It's made of women and men that God calls. And yet, as imperfect as we are, this church, we're called to this mission of Elijah. God sends us out just like he sent out Elijah. In the words of Luke 1-7, to make ready uh, for the Lord a people prepared. We have been given the mission of Elijah. We have a lot stacked against us. And sometimes it seems that there's no change, that people are not changing, that, that evil is winning out. And it even seems that the windows of hell may have indeed be opened up. But Matthew 16, 18, this ancient word tells us that upon this rock I have built my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Tell again the story of God's love, how God's will still speaks and how God is at work to his church, how God's grace is at work to his church. And this is how God's church slays the dragon and wins. Revelation 12, 11 says they overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. We overcome by the story that we tell again and again. You know, when I was in the hospital and I was still in the haze of, uh, of that experience um, and, and maybe it was, it was the drugs too, and uh, a friend came to sit with me and he didn't say a word. He just sat by my bedside. And right before he left, he told me this story that I still remember and I'm going to tell you that story too. So once upon a time, it was in a village, there was a child that was very, very sick. So they began looking for the wisest man in the village, and they found this rabbi. And the rabbi knew a very special prayer that if you prayed it at the entrance of a certain forest, that it could bring healing. And when he did that, um, it was enough, and the child was healed, and the village rejoiced. Well, 50 years later, another child was extremely sick, but the rabbi was gone. And nobody knew what that place in the forest was, but someone remembered the prayer. And 
the child was healed and that was enough and the village rejoiced. A hundred years later, there was a child that was on the brink of death and nobody knew uh, the rabbi. They didn't know the prayer or where the special place in the forest was. But they remembered the story and the child was healed and that was enough and the village rejoiced. You know, the meaning of the story is that we need to tell again the story of the cross and uh, God's love for us, and that will be enough. Let's pray. Lord God, here we are, your people, and you see us as we are. And Lord, you love each one to pieces. And uh, Lord, as we uh, prepare to leave this space, that the sound of, um, of your voice, even in the silence, would be so evident to encourage us on. In your name, amen.